Welcome to the Go and Teach Bible Study program presented by the Monta Vista Church of Christ in Phoenix, Arizona. We want to thank you for joining us today as we examine the truth of God's Word and the answers it holds to life's most important questions. If you have questions about this lesson or would like to study further, please contact us at montavistacoc.com. Now let's open our Bibles and study God's Word together. Thanks for joining me on the Go and Teach radio program. My name is Ryan Goodwin. I preach for the Monta Vista Church of Christ here in Phoenix, Arizona. If you have any questions about our program today, then please reach out to our congregation. You can either come by one of our weekly worship services or Bible classes, or you can set up a one-on-one study with one of our members. Either way, we want you to have a Bible answer for your Bible questions. So if you've got a Bible handy, then open up to the book of Isaiah You'll find it in the Old Testament, and it's a pretty long book, so hopefully you'll be able to find it pretty quickly here. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 53, but I want to start for context back in chapter 52. So here's Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many people were astonished at you, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations, kings will shut their mouths on account of him, for what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. Now often when we study Isaiah 53, we just start at Isaiah 53 verse 1. But I think these verses back in chapter 52 are the setup for what we find in chapter 53. Remember in Acts chapter 8, when Philip the Evangelist comes upon an Ethiopian eunuch who's studying from the Word of God in his chariot. It's Isaiah 53 that he's studying. It's that chapter that's got him so curious. He asks the Evangelist, who is this man talking about, himself or somebody else? And I think that the setup in chapter 52 is probably what prompts him to wonder that so much. After all, it's pretty astounding to read here about my servant, God's servant, prospering, being highly exalted and lifted up, that the world would be astonished at him, even though they would mar him. His appearance was marred more than any man, his form more than the sons of men. People would despise him, and yet through their despising him, they would actually be fulfilling the will of God. And in all of this, as it says in verse 15, he will sprinkle many nations. That's kind of going back to the idea that you find when the tabernacle was first dedicated by Moses. He took blood of a sacrifice and he sprinkled it on he sprinkled it on the Ten Commandments, he sprinkled it on the tabernacle, he sprinkled it on the altar, on Aaron and the other priests, he sprinkled it even on the people. The blood was what purified it and dedicated it and prepared it for service. And in the same way, whoever this servant is, whoever Isaiah is talking about in this prophecy, whoever that is, and I think you kind of know where I'm going with this, 
But whoever that servant is, is going to sprinkle many nations as well. So we get to Isaiah 53 then, and it is without a doubt one of the most elaborate and detailed prophecies concerning the Messiah. So he asks in verse 1, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That That's a natural question to ask. In fact, I can even imagine in Acts chapter 8, as the Ethiopian eunuch is reading through the book of Isaiah, that he comes to chapter 53 and this question so abruptly surprises him. Yeah, who has believed the message? Who has believed what is being said here? The setup in chapter 52 is so abrupt and so exciting and so engaging and asks so many questions of the reader that you can't help but wonder, well, who could believe this? Who could accept this message? So who has believed it? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, if you know anything about the story of Jesus, if you know anything about what the rest of Isaiah 53 is about, then then really you do have to wonder about that question. Because Jesus' own contemporaries, at least for the most part, did reject him. It was those in Jerusalem crying, crucify him, crucifying to Pontius Pilate. They were the ones who rejected him. The priests working in the temple, the temple, by the way, that belongs to God, it was those priests who were sending him away to Pilate to be crucified. His people rejected him. Perhaps even some of the same people who were throwing palm fronds in front of him and dropping their cloaks in front of him in his pathway into Jerusalem, who were crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Maybe even some of those very people just a few days later were crying, crucify him, crucify him. One of the really powerful things about a passage like Isaiah 53 is that it's a text that draws you in. It's a text that that pulls you toward the answer. It asks a question. It provides a setup that leaves you wondering, well, what else is there? Who is this that he's talking about? Give me more information. And the other great thing about it is that of all the Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, and and there are many, and there are many details, but of all the Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53 is probably the most detailed and the most elaborate, but it's also gruesome, and it's also accurate, and it is ultimately evocative. It it takes us to the scene of the cross with more grit and detail and emotion than any other passage on that subject. Every single messianic prophecy in the Old Testament gives us a a piece of the puzzle that leads to Christ. All of them are there. All of them are necessary. All of them are important as as the Old Testament builds up the, the character and the credibility of who the Messiah would be. But this one, Isaiah 53, it breaks our hearts as we read it. It breaks our hearts. Beginning here in verse 2, for he grew up before him, that is, whoever this person is, this, this servant mentioned in chapter 52, grew up before God. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Verse 3 says he was despised and forsaken of men. 
a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. This prophecy clearly states that the Messiah would not be a significantly or notably attractive person, at least according to the standards of his contemporaries. Now, Isaiah 53 isn't saying that Jesus was ugly, but only that he looked average. There was nothing about his appearance that would make you go, aha, that's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There was nothing so shocking or surprising about his appearance that would draw you to him. It was his teaching. It was his wisdom. It was his authority. It was the works. It was the testimony of God saying from the heavens, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. But it wasn't his appearance. Jesus might not have been an ugly person, but he wasn't some astoundingly attractive person at the same time. Remember, back when Israel wanted a king in the book of 1 Samuel, they wanted to have a king that was like all the other kings around them. We want a tall, handsome man. We want a warrior. We want someone who's strong and stout and who's going to lead us in battle. We want a king like the nations around us. And they got what they asked for. They got a man in Saul who was everything that they wanted. He was a head taller than everybody else. He was handsome. He was strong. He was brave in battle. But he was a man who lacked character. He lacked fortitude. He lacked commitment. He lacked faith. He lacked respect for God's authority. And when Saul was replaced later on by another king of God's choosing, God reminded the prophet Samuel, I'm not looking for someone just handsome on the outside because I don't judge people the way that human beings judge each other. God doesn't judge by appearance. He judges from what's in the heart, the substance of a man. So if we're going to be attracted to the Messiah, if Jesus' own contemporaries were going to be attracted to him, it would be for something other than the fact that he'd be tall, handsome, good-looking, rugged, whatever. They're going to be attracted to him because he's the way, the truth, and the life. Verse 3 describes him as despised and forsaken, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. How much sorrow do we have to bear in our lives? Can any of us truly say that we are a man of sorrows or a woman of sorrows? A lesson that can be learned is that Jesus was the most grief-stricken person in all the world. No matter how hard we think our lives are, no amount of tribulation can compare to the suffering of our Lord, both before and during the crucifixion. Remember, in his life, Jesus bore the weight of knowing that Jerusalem would be destroyed in only one generation, and it broke his heart. He talks about that in Matthew chapter 23 and going on into chapter 24. It broke his heart to look at Jerusalem, the city of his physical forefathers, the city where so many exciting events had happened. It was a city where the temple existed. It was the city of men like Hezekiah and David. And yet, within only one generation, by 70 AD, that city would be destroyed without a brick standing on top of another. He carried the burden of sorrow, of rejection by his own people, and the unappreciative masses who flocked to him in one moment, but turned on him the next. In his death, he suffered, he suffered great shame and agony, 
the pain is almost indescribable and incomparable to anything that we have to experience in this land of peace and prosperity. You know, we need to help our children as we teach them about Jesus. We need to help our children see that their problems, as big as they are, whether it's pressure from school or pressure from bullies, arguments with siblings, broken bones, ongoing health difficulties, even even the greatest burdens that our children will bear, even those things don't measure up to the weight of carrying the world's sins. We need to remind each other that our financial woes, our marital problems, all of our paltry complaints about co-workers, uh, neighbors, even those things can't compare to the guilt offering of Jesus. You know, it would be a lot easier to coexist not only with other people, just in a broad sense, but also to coexist in a congregation of Christians if everybody approached the throne of grace with an attitude of awe. We should all be united by a common sense of humility, that Jesus was a man of sorrows, and his greatest sorrow is people who are lost in sin. But it says here, going on to verse 4, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. These verses seem to be the inspiration for a hymn that we sometimes sing at Monte Vista called He Carried My Sorrows. By Glenda Shales and R.J. Stevens, here are the lyrics. He carried my sorrows, he bore my griefs, was pierced for transgression, afflicted for peace. He suffered in anguish, he writhed in pain, was smitten, forsaken, abandoned, and slain. Despised and rejected, he knew no sin was crushed for his people, no violence within. My heart mourns his chastening, my tears still fall. My sin is the reason he gave me his all. The chorus is, He knew by his stripes I am healed, through his blood I can kneel. For by his oppression I worship my king, my savior, my king. This passage in Isaiah 53 is, Needless to say, a very significant verse to the Christian because it explains quite clearly why we have the opportunity to be saved. Because the Messiah offered himself up for us, for all of us, we are free from the eternal penalty of our transgressions if, if we submit to his authority and obey him. Notice the way the four phrases in Isaiah 53 verse 5 are worded. It was not for his own transgressions, but our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of the sins that we commit are deserving of a punishment. A punishment far greater than what we could bear. Our sins, to put it quite frankly deserve hell. But none of us have to bear the ultimate and eternal penalty of sin if we obey Jesus Christ. Remember an important caveat to that statement, though. It was not the cross that saved us. It was the perfect sacrifice that was on the cross. I think sometimes Christians make the mistake of thinking that Jesus stood in our place or that he was punished in our place, as if if I had suffered on the cross, then I could have saved myself. No, we can't think like that. 
we could not have suffered a similar fate and saved ourselves. Because salvation never comes from within. Salvation comes from without. We cannot save ourselves. We must be saved by God. Our sin deserves the penalty of hell, not death on a cross. Therefore, it was not in our place that Jesus died, but it was on our behalf. And maybe some people might quibble with that and say it's a semantic thing, but I think it's an important distinction to make. Jesus did not die in our place. Jesus died on our behalf. Jesus sacrificed himself as the guilt offering to pay the ultimate penalty for the collective sin of mankind from the very first sin in the Garden of Eden to the time that he comes back in judgment. He died for sins, one sacrifice for all sins for all time. Now, The grace that comes from that sacrifice must be accessed in a way that only comes by his authority. We must access that grace through obedience to the gospel message. But as it says here in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Think about what it's saying there. Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. The big difference is, I'm not just. I can't can't offer myself as a perfect sacrifice. I can't climb up onto a cross and say, God, I'm going to go ahead and die for my own sins because I'm not just. I am unjust in God's eyes. I am not a spotless, pure lamb of God. I am not a perfect sacrifice. My death does not accomplish anything. It's just my physical death. He was the just dying for the unjust in order that he might bring us to God. I can't bring myself to God, at least in the sense that I cannot bridge the gap between sinful me and perfect God without Christ's help. Now, I can lay myself at the feet of Jesus Christ. I can bring myself to a position where I receive his grace, but I cannot bring myself to God by bridging the great chasm between perfect God and sinful man. I'm not capable of bridging that chasm by myself in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive together in the spirit. Now it goes on to say in verse 21, we'll throw this in there. This is just a free lesson for today. In verse 21, and corresponding to that, that is the salvation of Noah in the ark and the flood. So corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Christ made the way possible by bearing the collective weight of the world's sins. That is something we could not have done. But here's what we can do. We can come to the cross of Christ and lay our sins at his feet. We can be baptized in his name so that as we die in his likeness, that the old self is crucified, the old self is buried in a watery grave, not a physical dirt grave, 
But the old self is killed on the cross and buried in a grave, so we're also raised up in newness of life just as he was raised up from his earthly grave. And all that's in Romans chapter 6. But that could be a whole radio program on its own. Let's go back here to Isaiah 53 and notice, beginning in verse 7, Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? Question then, why did Jesus not open his mouth as he was being killed? Why did he simply accept it when he was condemned to death and beaten before his accusers. The wording here is very similar to the thoughts of another Old Testament prophet named Jeremiah. And in his prophecy in Jeremiah 11, verse 19, but I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. What's so amazing about the Messiah is his self-control. At a time when most of us would have wept and begged for our lives, Or at least for a quick and merciful death, Jesus kept his mouth shut and his soul focused on the goal of his ministry, which was to come and die. It was for that purpose that he came to this world so that it makes perfect sense that he would have himself so spiritually prepared for the event that when it happened, he was not blubbering and mumbling and crying and weeping in a way that showed spiritual weakness. And for specific fulfillments of this prophecy, look at some of these passages in Matthew chapter 26, verses 61 through 63. There were false witnesses who came forward with testimony about Jesus, yet he did not respond to inquiries made by the high priest. In John chapter 19, verses 1 through 13, Jesus was unwilling to respond to Pilate's questions. Furthermore, before King Herod in Luke chapter 23, verses 8 through 12, Jesus refused to perform miracles or parlor tricks or even to speak to that rotten king. So going on to Isaiah 53, verse 9. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. This is a prophecy concerning the manner in which Jesus' body would be disposed of. And from the gospel stories, it's clear that our Jesus, our Lord, our Lamb, was assigned a place with criminals. He died alongside two robbers who were also being crucified. And he likely would have been buried with them in unmarked graves in some despised place. But Joseph of Arimathea intervened on behalf of the body. And Jesus was actually buried in a tomb reserved for wealthy individuals. So his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. So as we bring our radio program to a close, let's finish up with verses 10 through 12. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he'll prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. He will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he'll divide the treasure with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many 
and interceded for the transgressors. My friends, you are not going to find an advocate like Jesus. There is nobody who even is capable of doing what Jesus has already done for you. There is nobody who is capable of offering him or herself as a guilt offering for your sins. There is nobody even capable of standing before God and vouching for someone saying, I died for that person. That person has been obedient to the gospel message and I'm vouching for them. There's nobody even capable of doing that for you. He rendered himself as a guilt offering. He gave himself in the anguish of his soul so that you could come to God in newness of life. So why won't you listen to the gospel message? If you have any questions or if you'd like to respond to the gospel in some way, please reach out to Monte Vista today. Thank you for joining us today. To hear this program again, please visit our website at montevistacoc.com. If you're in the Phoenix area, come visit us at the Monte Vista Church of Christ. We're located at 2202 North 40th Street. We have Bible classes for all ages each Sunday morning at 930 and again on Wednesday night at 7. For more information about the Monte Vista Church of Christ or to request a personal Bible study, please go to montevistacoc.com. Hallelujah.